Good morning, church. We're glad to have you guys this morning. I have a couple of quick announcements. The first one is if you're new or visiting with us, we would love to connect with you after the service at guest services. Um, it's in the back over by the One Cup Cafe. We have a little gift for you guys. Um, or if you would prefer to connect digitally, you can text the word here to 219-233-2311. Um, we're glad you guys could join us this morning. Um, next up, I have an announcement for our parents in the room. Uh, we have this cool resource for you guys to use. It's called the Parent Q app. If you haven't downloaded it already, I encourage you to get out your phone, look it up. Um, it's called Parent Q. And they have um, really cool weekly activities for you to do with your kids, um, things to talk to your kids about. They have resources for you as parents. Um, just kind of help you guide and be that spiritual giant in your kid's life throughout the week. So just as an example, like this week, they sent out an article of parents about um, how to find out what your child's uh, love language is and so that you can love them in a way that really reaches and speaks to their love language. And so that's just one example of the tools and the resources that they'll send out to you weekly um, and things that you can do in the app. So I'd encourage you to download that if you haven't already. Um, and then lastly, as we move into our ties and offerings uh, portion of the service this morning, I just want you to think about your favorite smell. Like smells can just transport you and they can just bring you joy. Maybe it's coffee brewing in the morning or cinnamon rolls baking in the oven or whatever that looks like. Just think about that smell, like how happy that makes you when you smell that. Because um, I want to go back in the Bible, it talks about the aroma. Like in uh, Noah's story, he built an altar to the Lord and the Lord said that that aroma was pleasing to him. And the word aroma was actually used 39 times in the Old Testament referring to sacrifices being made on the altar to the Lord. And then they tie it in in the New Testament when John is talking to uh, the people of Philippi. Um, he's talking to them and um, saying that their financial gifts were actually a pleasing aroma to the Lord, kind of in the same way that those sacrifices made in the Old Testament were pleasing to the Lord. Uh, so I think that's just really neat. So just think about like your favorite smell and how that makes you feel. Like that's how the Lord feels when we give our time, talent, resources, our tithing, and that's just really cool. So um, if you guys do want to give to the vision and mission of Rethink Church, uh, there's a couple ways you can do so. You can either give online at rethinkchurch.cc or we have a black box in the back. Um, we're so glad you guys could make it out this morning and hope you enjoy Mark's sermon.
Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew 11, 1 through 4. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Pastor Church, and every once in a while, I just feel like, hey, somebody else can read scripture and go from there. So, one of the most amazing things to be is when uh, you get to be around other people from different cultures, and you hear them say the same things that you're saying, but in a different language. Does that make sense? So, if you ever, like, can't be around other people saying the Lord's Prayer and stuff like that, you should do it. So, uh, today, what we're going to start off is we're still doing our spiritual disciplines, our practices of how we're actually going to do this and like follow Jesus better. And one of the things I just want to clarify, we're not doing this to earn our salvation. Mm. That's not earned. Does that make sense? Yeah. We just accept it. So we're instantaneously made into a new creation, but now we get to go through the process of how do we actually live to be like Jesus? How do we actually become more like Jesus than more like ourselves? And so this is part of that practice of what we're actually going to get to go do. And so we talked about resting, we talked about Sabbath, we talked about quiet time, we talked about silence and solitude. Those awkward moments of our day, right? Some of us are like, I love it. Some of us are like, I hate it. I have to hear myself think, right? And so that's all part of there. Um, <coughs> and so as we get to work through this, what we're going to end up doing today, we're going to start off with the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to use this because here's this beautiful thing that's a connection. There's a, a beautiful relationship between prayer and scripture. That when I want to pray more, I usually find myself in scripture. And then I find myself a little confused on what the Bible says, and so I pray more. And then it just keeps growing and growing and growing. One of the things I just want to keep in mind about this, some of us have been trying to follow Jesus for a long time, and we probably screwed this up along the way, right? Uh, you guys, some of you said that story, like, I think it was, uh, well, Carson 17, so probably 15 years ago, I was right around 300 pounds. And I would watch The Biggest Loser and be like, man, I cannot wait to get motivated to do this. And like lose weight like these guys, you know, this TV show, the old like biggest loser weight loss journey and all that kind of stuff, yeah. which turned out to be a scam, but it's fine, whatever. Some people got healthier out of it. So, but I would watch this and get really, really motivated eating bowls of ice cream and putting peanut butter and sprinkles and chocolate chips on it, being like, man, this is really great for them. This is awesome. And I just keep eating my ice cream, right? Yeah. Probably why I was at the point I was at. So then, Instead of trying to get better into better health, I started realizing I should probably actually train to get into better health. Mm -hmm. And so I went to the gym, I went like 
literally started walking on the treadmill for five to 10 minutes at a time. And then I would literally go take a break and then go back and do it again. Uh, and sort of started training how to do this. Now, I'm not in ideal health by any means, because I still like ice cream, so there's that. But it's, what I realized was that instead of trying to do certain things, some of us have been trying to follow Jesus more and more. Now let's start training to be more like Jesus. Maybe it's time we actually do this. Now, this is an old leadership adage. Instead of trying to get better, just to train to get better. I don't know who said it first, but it's somewhere out there in the internet uh, and all that. So don't think that I came up with it myself. Uh, but there's that one. So what uh, Annalisa and Roland, or Russell just read for us is this, 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 this beautiful passage where Jesus takes this. And what we notice here is these words get put into these things. Now, what Jesus is doing is what we call stringing pearls. It's a practice that Jewish rabbis of his day would do, where they would say particular words, and it would bring their audience back to context, right? We have these, we just don't know we call them this, right? If I got up here and I said four score and seven years ago, what's the context? So war, Abraham Lincoln, all that, right? If I said, Luke, I'm your father, what's the context? Star Wars and all that, and right? And, and, and if I, like, all you have to do is just think about these moments of this, and you see it, and you can put yourself into the context. And I have to explain to you what was going on in the American Civil War and all that for you to get the picture. No. This is the same thing that's going on with Jesus and these words. And almost every single word, whether it's in Matthew or in Luke, and it's just one of the, if you're reading this, you're like, hey, Matthew puts this in a different order than Luke did, and Luke is saying, hey, like, his disciples are asking to pray. Why didn't Matthew bring this up? Because Matthew was a disciple. It's different audiences with different contexts, but writing the same events. And so there's different perspectives to it. Matthew is one of the OGs. Like he's an original disciple. He's like watching this. He's saying, oh yeah, I've seen all this before. Luke is investigating all this. Does that make sense? Luke, like if you, if you want to look at the big picture of Luke, say Luke and the book of Acts. And start at the very end of the book of Acts, and you see that Paul's in prison. Paul's writing this account to try to, like, almost justify why Paul's in prison. Like, he's explaining to this guy named Theophilus, who's writing this, who's, like, the main audience. Uh, and he's saying, like, hey, Paul gave up everything in his life. And he actually, at one point, was persecuting followers of Jesus, and he gave up everything because of this. And he goes all the way back to the very beginning which we see in Luke chapter 1. We see it in the Christmas story. You probably read it every year at Christmas in Luke chapter 2. And then he's literally starting all the way through here. So he's doing the investigative work saying, hey, to the group of disciples, like this is probably decades later, like, hey, how did Jesus teach you how to pray? Why did you pray like this? Right? And that miracle that happened here, what all this? And so he adds all these details because he's getting almost every, every person's perspective in there that would have mattered. Mary Magdalene's perspective. He's getting Peter's perspective. He's getting all these other disciples' perspective where Matthew doesn't have to ask anyone. Because Matthew was there. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, I saw Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount one time and he put this, sermon, this prayer in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke doesn't know that because Luke wasn't there. So he just puts it in there. Does that make sense? It's not wrong. It's just simply different perspectives, different ways of going about this. And so, part of that process is when he puts these words in here, like Luke's is a little bit different than Matthew's, and it's not, it's not wrong, right? They're just different. So there's this old ancient document called the Didache. The Didache is like this, this executive summary. It was pre the Gospels. It was pre the New Testament letters. And it's like this executive summary of what the, the followers of Jesus should do on a daily basis. 
And part of this was pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. However long you do it, throw it in there. Does that make sense? So you put that in there, and it's like, whoa. You start reading this, you see it as early as like 150, 200 BC after, after Christ and stuff like that. And so all of this is in there. So when I start to read the scriptures, and I get to a point where I don't necessarily understand things, and I'm like, whoa, I don't understand how we do this, it draws me back to prayer. Some of us, we, like, we need to learn how to do this and say, okay, how do we follow this whole process? And just because you get to a point in scripture, because here's, here's the harsh reality, scripture is not written to you. It's written for you. None of us in here are original audience members of the Gospels, of the books, of the Psalms, or anything like that. Does it make it irrelevant? Absolutely not. But that means there's going to be contextual things that you don't necessarily understand, and so you just need to start working through this. How do we actually do this? And I would say the very first thing to do, instead of diving into the educational processes that are out there, the resources that are amazing out there, start with prayer. Holy Spirit wants to bring clarity to you as you read the scriptures. And while it's not necessarily meant for you, they're sort of written to you, but it is meant for you. There's some ancient things that we need to go through and say, okay, how do I actually draw truths out of this? And not just have the knowledge, but to actually apply it. When I lead my abandoned groups here, um, <clears throat> which is a small group, but we just, all we do is read scripture. It's very complicated. Read scripture, you journal, and then we get together, we talk about it, we pray. It's a very simple way of discipleship. To me, it's one of those ways that, like, if I can't explain on a napkin, then it's too complicated for me. So, one of the things I ask people to do is start journaling through what do you observe in the passage? What words stick out to you? What are the things that you see? Ask questions. And then what's the one thing that you can apply in your life out of this passage? Not ten, because you're not going to do ten things. But you can do one thing, right? Yeah. Like, let's just, like, I can do this one thing. I cannot throw punch people because Jesus said, love my neighbor, right? So I can do this. I can do that for 24 hours. I'm going to find the next thing I'm going to do. So I just, I literally, this, I wrote this down last week. I shouldn't, I should not throw punch people. Because Jesus said, turn the other cheek, right? In this passage that I was reading. So, I did that. It was a great win for me to not do that, right? Part of the other thing is, when I start reading scriptures, I want to see, I want to see people the way that Jesus sees people. I want to see people for the potential that he sees them. Right? When he calls Abram out of this land of Ur of Chaldeans, 1800, like, think Iraq, Iran area. He's, that's where he's calling them from. And he says, hey, just go on this journey. He doesn't say to him, like, man, currently you have no kids, you're pointless, you're worthless, right? He says you're going to become a great nation. Could I see people with the potential that God sees people with, right? When he goes to Gideon, who's threshing wheat in a wine press, like in a pit, he's trying to get this, the, the wheat to separate from the chaff. He's doing this, and the angel of the Lord shows up to him and says, you mighty warrior, right? I want to see people that way. When God looks at David and says, man, I'm going to call you a man after my own heart. Even in spite of all the sin that he's committed. Mm -hmm. He doesn't call him early on, like, really, like, man after my own heart. He calls him as an old man, he's a man after my own heart. And if you look at David's story, he has some amazing moments, but then he has some horrible moments as well. Right? I want, to, I want to learn how to do this. I want to see people the way in my life, the way that Jesus sees people. Now, one of the things we need to do when we read the scriptures, I just want to give you clarity. Um, I grew up thinking, and I have to check myself almost every time I read the Bible, when I do this, that I'm not the hero of the story. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm not David. And the David of life is me. 
I'm not getting him raising up this army of two, like paring it down to like 250, whatever it was, and doing this. I'm not that. If you do this, here's a head, you need to, need to be aware of this. I'm not calling you a heretic, I'm just, it's a tendency to become a heretic when you do this. It's a heretical way of doing this. You put yourself in the center of the scriptures, and you think that you're the hero. And then you lead to writing weird books and asking people to drink some purple Kool-Aid, and that's a wrong thing to do. Don't do that, please, okay? So, <clears throat> it's a horrible way of doing it, but some people can get in this weird sense of thinking that I'm the center of the scriptures. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you're not. Instead, maybe you just need to start looking, thinking through, okay, how do I actually do this? God, what are you trying to teach me here? What does it look like for me to actually step into this and, and go from there? And so, I want to make sure I see myself correctly when I do this. And so, Part of that process is, because here's the deal, while we step into this, there's no, like, in kids' Bibles, no one is putting out the fact that Dave, or sorry, Abram offers up Sarah to Pharaoh as his, his wife. He says, hey, she's just my sister. That doesn't, never makes it into a child book. And then Pharaoh's like, dude, why didn't you tell me she's your wife, right? Nobody in script in the Bible, in the kids' books, Put Gideon making this massive statue and idol saying, may everybody worship me and this idol, right? That doesn't make it into a kid's book. And what do we know about David? David and Goliath. We don't know the fact about it. You know, like Uriah, he murders Uriah so they can have his wife Bathsheba, right? After he already got her pregnant. That doesn't make it into a kid's book somehow, right? All of these things. Why? Yes, we want to teach the scriptures to our kids. Don't get me wrong. In an age-appropriate way. It's one of my beautiful, like, what I love about our kids' ministry. It's not just, like, babysitting. It's actually teaching kids' ministry stuff and stuff like that. <clears throat> but we have to start realizing, okay, if I only put myself in a situation where I'm the hero, then what do we do? We ignore our sins. Right? One of the reasons that David is called a man after God's own heart is because every time he's confronted with a sin, he confesses, he repents, and he walks away from it. He does not cover it up. So maybe we should learn from that. Yeah. Now, once somebody confronts you with your own sin, what do you do? And how you respond matters. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, with that in mind, let's get into the Lord's Prayer and start like, working through this, these stringing of pearls that he throws out there. And Jesus starts off with the very first word, which would have been explosive to his original audience, the word hour. Now, what he's doing here is he's, like, if Jesus truly is the Son of God, He's either degraded himself down to humanity, or he's elevated back us up to sacred. I'll let you decide which one it is. I don't know. I'll put it that way. Could be a little bit both. both. But to me, what he's doing is he's reminding us as the, as the audience members here that we're not by ourselves. You know what I mean? You're not isolated, right? You're, you're part of these other people. You have other relationships that are there. And these relationships with you are, are, that you have are not just going to be the people that you like. They're going to be people that you don't like that are a part of this hour. Right? Yeah. That person you hate the most, that's part of hour too. That, like, some of you probably just had that mental picture come to you, because like, I sure did. Right? And I was like, oh yeah, I have to remind myself that person is part of that hour. Mm. Right? And what I have to constantly remind myself is this. That every time I see, even just the people I despise the most, because as a pastor, I still despise people, you're welcome. 
not like, <laughs> I haven't figured out how to like not despise some people, but those people that I can't stand, they still have value, dignity, and worth. Amen. Not because of who they are, but because of whose they are. They're made in the image of God as much as I was and as much as you are. So the people you can't stand, they're still holy and sacred just like you are. They, they bear God's image just as you do. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says this, There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their lives is two hours like a gnat. But it is immortals whom you joke with, work with, and marry, and snub, and exploit, immortal horrors of everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are perpetually solemn. We must play. We must enjoy life. Our merriment must be that kind in the fact that we marry us to kinds. Why? Because you're existing with, not with sacred people. And this is part of that life. When we work into this, when we interact with each other, how do we actually interact with each other? What does it look like when you interact with the person you despise the most? Do you interact with them and still treat them with respect? That's the most dangerous kind of way of interacting with people, by the way. The people that you like show you respect, but also you know they can't stand you. That makes them dangerous. Could you do the same thing? Right? And so, when you walk into them, what does it actually look like? And so, everyone is equally sacred. Everyone carries the image of God in all this. And so part of that reminder here is there. And so, in that first word of hour. So as we go towards this process of learning how to work through the, the scriptures, what I want us to remind you, we're going to put up this picture of a bunch of circles, okay? And this is a bunch of circles right here to understand the context of the, the cultural understanding of a passage of scripture. My friend Brad Gray has a more elaborate version of this of walking the text. He says that the number one uh, mistake of reading the Bible and so I just dumped it down for my own version of this because he has like 900 of them and I'm like, dude, that's a lot, right? So, but to understand the context of the scripture, we need to understand the literary form, the language of it. Was it written in Hebrew? Was it written in Greek? None of it was ever written in English. You just need to know this. The authors of the Bible didn't know English. They didn't even know it existed, right? Think about how uncivilized they are. So, you have that, you have the literary form. Is it historic? Is it law? Was it poetic and all that? Was it all that stuff? So then you have geography. Geography plays into the visual because think about this. If I were to tell you, hey, let's go to Mount Rushmore, what are the things you're going to see? A mountain with what? Presidents. Faces of presidents, right? And if you're a conspiracy theorist, there's something behind it, right? So all this cool. So you have all these things. But if I like, if you think about this, when you when you picture where you're at in the, in the land of Israel or the land of the Bible. There are certain things we're going to see, and that's going to play into how you read the scriptures. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so part of that process is there. You have history of this. How does this play out? Like, did, did the Greeks ever control this? Did the Romans ever control this? There are places in Israel, where I stood, that had 27 civilizations over it. Just back and forth, back and forth. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's going to play into how you actually understand this. And so part of that is helps us understand the context, because here's the deal. While scripture wasn't written to us, it was written for us. And for us to just grab a verse out of the Bible and say, this is my life first, this is what I'm going to name and claim it, and all this, it's easy, you can easily fall into the trap of heresy doing that. Mm. So, so understanding context is, is crucial. 
And does this look like a lot of work? Probably. But so does understanding stocks. So does understanding your fantasy football. I have no clue how fantasy football even works. I will avoid it at all costs. So do you base, so do your Pinterest feeds and threads, whatever's in there. And that looks like a whole mess of the world that I don't even want to touch, right? Because here's the deal, whatever we find value with, we're gonna to try to figure out how to work it in, like how to get better at it. So if you can approach scripture and say, Jesus, I may, I may not even understand the very basics, but I'm gonna do my very best. There are tons and tons of free resources for you to dive into and understand it. To understand the literary, the language, the history, the geography, the visual, and all of that. One of my favorite things to do is to teach people how to actually read the scriptures so that we're not the center of it, but we actually see how this plays out before us yeah. and how we can take the knowledge of that and apply it in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. And the very first thing we need to do in the Lord's Prayer is that the word our somehow either brings Jesus down to our level or elevates us to, to a sacred level. Mm -hmm. Keep that in mind. Number two is the word Father, right? So in this, he says, our Father. Now, one of the things you need to understand about the scriptures, these layering, these, these, these stringing of pearls, what he's doing here is he's drawing the, the attention of the original audience back to the first time that God would have ever called somebody his son or referred to him as a father-son relationship. Anyone know it? Um, no? Nope. Exodus chapter 4. God is calling Moses out of, the, he's in, Moses is in Midian, and he's saying, hey, you're going to go back to Pharaoh. You're going to go back to royalty of Egypt, and you're going to tell them to let my people go. And then he comes up with a cool little dance. He grew up in the Church of the 80s and did the whole thing right there. Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Yep, you got it. So you have all that right there. Um, and so Moses goes back to him and he says, here's what he says in uh, Exodus chapter 4. If I can just pull it up real quick. Maybe. He says, then go to Pharaoh and say that the Lord says to Israel, this is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But Pharaoh refuses, so now I will kill your firstborn. He's a little harsh here, right? Mm -hmm. So what he's saying is, like, you mess with my son, I'm going to mess with your son. Mm -hmm. Now, the word Egypt in Hebrew is a place of narrowness, of, fortis, uh, of fortifying, and of oppression. Keep this in mind. It's going to weave its way through here. What God is doing, or sorry, what Jesus is doing here when he says the word father would have been explosive. Yes, like, we have all these nice little warm feelings about God being our dad and our father and all this. And then later on, Jesus will use another word called uh, Abba, which is translated like daddy, into, into that language. But in this particular prayer, he uses the word father for a very specific reason. Now, when I hear this, some, this, is, this is one of the parts of the scriptures that really became like contention with me as an early follower of Jesus. I hated the Lord's Prayer as an early follower of Jesus because of this word right here. And whenever I had to pray the Lord's Prayer or say it, I would start at hallowed be your name. I would skip these first two words because of my relationship with my dad. And I just could not stand this reality. And people would tell me all the time, like when your heavenly, when your, sorry, when your earthly father fails you, your heavenly father never has. And I'm like, I don't know, because I grew up in a hell of like places, you know what I mean? I went through a ton of things because my dad wasn't around. And some of us have these issues. Does that make sense? And so, part of this process was learning how to work through these kind of realities in that regard. And some of us sitting in a great, thoughtful relationship with our father. And that should be celebrated. 
you should enjoy that. There's this harsh reality that like, dads, we just need to know this. I'm going to give you a little side note and then we'll come back to this text. There's this harsh reality that, that dads, we just need to know. The way that your children look at you and how you have this relationship is how they're going to see God at some point. I view God because of my relationship with my dad for the longest time as somebody who's distant, didn't care, and just let things happen. Does that make sense? And so, it had a hard time working through saying, God, do you actually care about me? Does that make sense? That was a pro- I was probably 27 years old when I referred to God as my dad. It took me a long time. It took me 10 years of following Jesus to get to that point. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so, part of this, we just need to understand this. But here's the deal, Dad. Dad's. If I were to give you a brick of gold, and I said, hey, you're going to hold on to this brick of gold. All you need to do is keep it on you at all times. It's going to grow value exponentially. You just can't even imagine this. Is it going to be heavy at times? Will it be a burden at times? Yeah. But is it worth it? A massive brick of gold. Think about that. Right? Same thing with parenting. Is it responsible? Yep. Is it a burden at times? Yeah. Especially when they wake up with a crappy diaper and you're like, who else is going to take care of this? Can you do this on your own? Hey, team must, dude. Come on, hurry up. You know what I mean? Like, that's all part of that process. You know what I mean? And then you just get, like, other ways. And you just have to, like, you just have to learn how to process this. Is it a burden to deal with your kids as a dad? Yeah. But is it worth it? Think about this. And yes, it is a burden that they see you the way, like, the way they see you is going to be a relationship with their, their, their father in heaven. What about the beauty of that? The potential of that? The way that you get to interact with your kids is the way that you get to shape the way that they view God. Doesn't that seem like a beautiful thing to step into and hopefully get better at following Jesus? Not just hoping that you get better at following Jesus, but actually putting yourself in a place where you train to be better? You train to follow Jesus better? And all of that. So... That's all part of this process, that we need to do this. So, the word Egypt is narrow, it's oppressive, it's fortified, and it's this just oppressive place. And Jesus, when he very first says the the word Father, the original audience would have memorized that and known this. But does Israel stay in Egypt? No, they're liberated, right? This is part of the process. What Jesus is doing is saying, hey, at one point our people were, were... occupied, we're in a fortified place, we are oppressed, we are in a narrow place, but we were left out, we are let out of that. Does that make sense? And what Jesus is saying is here, it's the same thing for us. The original audience are sitting in a Roman-occupied place, oppressed, fortified, there's military everywhere. They cannot walk down one block without seeing a Roman soldier. And reminded that you don't rule yourself. They're oppressed, they're fortified, they're in a narrow, narrow place. And yet Jesus says, our Father. And while Rome doesn't still live there, right? The Romans will eventually crush the Israelites in 70 AD with the the war and all that. But what Jesus is doing is he's confronting the, the ideology behind Rome, the ideology behind Egypt. The reality that, like, hey, you can't just keep messing with my kids. And not, not the Israelites, like you and I as kids. Because there's a power that drives the Romans and the, and the Egyptians and stuff like that, that oppress people, that fortify people, that, that continually keep people down. And it's not a power of a nation, but it's a power of, of an evil power behind us. 
And I think what Jesus is doing for us is reminding us of who we're talking to. When we pray, Jesus, you have liberated people. Not just from oppression of nations, but oppression of power behind them of sin and evil. Remember, we have three enemies of our soul. We have Satan, who's going to lead us into deceptive ideas. We have our own flesh, which is going to lead us into like a disordered desire. And then we also have our sinful, uh, like just sinful societies, stuff like that. What Jesus is doing in this prayer is he's somehow elevating us to the idea of our not just by ourselves, but then Father who rescues and redeems us. Right? And Jesus is saying, hey, it doesn't matter when you're, how old your sin was, 10 years ago, 10 months ago, 10 hours ago, 10 minutes ago. My, my salvation will free you of that. And he's going to confront the power of sin and evil in this moment. And so he conquers sin and he goes from there. And then he gets to this third word. And this third word is our. It's holy. It's set apart. Um, it's a, it, that's literally what the word means here. So we have this idea that we are with the, the father relationship. It's somehow distinct, right? Now, think about this. I don't know about how you have, like, I had to, like, imagine this because I've never really interacted with my dad in the sense of, like, playful or whatever. But I know when our boys interacted with me, there were times where I had to remind myself I'm playing with a seven-year-old. Does that make sense? Like, now, I didn't let them win because why would you do that, right? You should just train them up in ways and stuff like this. But I had to remind myself, especially Shad. Shad is probably the most competitive person I've ever dealt with in my life, right? You could literally, like, we would play golf in our backyard in Michigan, and he would just be competitive about it to the sense where he would, like, go all out. He would get mad, build golf clubs at other people, maybe our windows and stuff like that, uh, at the age of, like, 9 or 10. So he's still competitive, right? But I would have to remind myself, we used to play hockey in our basement down in Michigan, and I would have to say, I can't check him into the walls because he can't blow up wind his mom, be like, hey, dude, dad, check me on the wall. I have this broken arm now, and stuff like that. What are we going to do about it? And I'd just be like, whatever. Sucks to be Right? So, but every once in a while, we just need to remind ourselves who we're talking to. Does that make sense? And so think about this. How you, how you start off talking with God is going to be mad, like it matters. Right? You, talk, you see Jesus interacting with John in, in Revelation, and he shows up, and John, one of his the disciple that Jesus loves the most, right? According to John. He calls himself identified well, right? by the way. When Jesus shows up, John fall, falls face down. Right? Every once in a while, we just need to be reminded of who we're talking to. And so, the first time that somebody uses God's name in scriptures is Genesis chapter 2, or sorry, Genesis chapter 3. The serpent shows up and refers to God, in a sense, now, Genesis chapter 2, God has given Adam and Eve this beautiful, like, here's some instructions for you, by the way, here's some, all this. Now, think about this creation. Jesus, God, creates Adam and Eve, day 6. Day 7, they rest. Sabbath is our, is our fuel, not our reward. Keep that in mind. And then day 8, they get to work. And while they're getting to work, God says to them, here's this commandment. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do, you will certainly die. And then you turn the page. And here's what the serpent shows up and says. Genesis chapter 3 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals, and the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
This is the most dangerous lie that's there. Because there's some elements of truth. All, all the serpent did was twist it and put it off a few degrees. And he does it in a couple different manners. Okay? So, God's instructions to Adam and Eve are wide, it's vast, it's generous. You can eat from any tree, just not this one. And then the serpent shows up and says, did God really say not to eat from any tree? And what's Eve's response? No, it's not, not from any tree, just this one. This is the play that Jesus, that, that our enemy just twists these things every once in a while, right? Think about an airplane going from L.A. to Rome. If it's off by one degree, it's going to be a vastly different landing spot, right? And this is what Satan does to us. He takes this, this element of truth that God has given us, and he twists it to force us to be just a little bit off. Right? There's a couple different things here. The vastness of the, of the generosity of God is saying, hey, you can eat from any tree, just not this one. And then the serpent shows up and says, you can't eat from any tree. He says, oh, no, it's just this one. But it's also in this name of how Satan, sorry, the serpent re, like responds and, and calls God. In Genesis chapter 2, the creation story, the way that God is referred to is El Elohim, the Lord God. Or sorry, El Yehovah Elohim, the Lord God. It's his title and his name. When Satan, the serpent, shows up in Genesis chapter 3, he says, did Elohim really save us? Did God really save us? He keeps his title. He takes away his name. It's like calling pastor, doctor, teacher. Right? One of the reasons I hate Pastor Mark, that title, is because of this. It drives me insane. Right? My mom did not call me Pastor Mark Ulrich. Here you are. You're born. Right? So, it's a title that I carry. Right? Like, whatever. So, there's that title. But... Part of this reason is that we need to understand that what, what Satan wants to do is just literally make God as distant and disconnected from our lives as possible. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the ways that he does this. So when we pray, boldly and confidently start your prayer, Our Father, hallowed be your name. Mm-hmm. And boldly go there and say, okay, I don't know how far off I am from you, God, but you call me your dad. For me, this is a prayer that I've literally had to learn how to pray. And it's like one of those muscle memories to say, okay, God, Satan wants to make you distant, disconnected, and respectful, but distant from me. But Jesus, you showed up, and you somehow made God tangible and close. But remember who you're talking to. This is what we call the, the theologians call the transcendence of God, that he holds the universe in the palm of his hands. And yet he knows how many hairs you have on your head as well. I mean, it's pretty easy, right? It's there. It's just like one of those ideas of like he knows every intimate aspect of your life, even while he holds the universe in the palm of his hands, because he cares. One of the very first things we need to realize is learn who we're talking to. He's not this distant, disconnected person who doesn't care. He cares about you. So, let's pray. Jesus, thanks for this day. Thanks for who you are. God, thank you that you did not leave us where you, where you found us. That you see the potential in us because you created us for a certain reason. And God, I pray right now that you, you would just simply step into this.
And this week's challenge, God, is to be to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. That we would step into this and we would remember who we're talking to. And that we would boldly do this so that we can know who you are. No matter where we find ourselves on the spectrum, no matter what our past is, no matter what our history is, no matter what our current situation is, that God, you care for us. And we're going to just dwell in that. We're going to be okay with that. We love you, God. Genuinely pray this. Amen. Wait, if you need prayer for anything, I'd love to pray with you back in the great body green wall. If you're new with us today, I'd love to connect with you somewhere out there as well. So church, we hope you know some true that God loves you and I love you. And as we follow him, we'll count it the best he has to offer for us. So let's go. Be the church. Have a good week. We'll see you next Sunday.